Welcome to Digibarn Radio, fascinating stories from the history of computing. I'm Tommy Cuellar, and now Digibarn Radio presents Lee Felsenstein giving us a talking tour of all nine sheets of the complete schematics for the Osborne One, the first commercially successful portable personal computer. Lee was the designer of the Osborne One. This interview was recorded in Santa Cruz in November 2006 by Digibarn curator Bruce Damer. Let's listen. Nine of nine, so let's get these in order. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. So they're all in reverse order, okay. So I'm, you know, I, I, these are in order in which I drew them out by hand initially. Mm-hmm because the whole set never changed. Um, and I guess I'll just... Let's see. Well, it's a little problem getting them handled. I guess So, multi-layer main logic board PCB schematic. This is for the Osborne one. Okay, and it says release to manufacturing. Uh, it's the issue George Waldron. I remember him. He was sort of the number two or number three engineer hired out by uh, Ed Richter, who was the VP for engineering uh, after I gave it up. Um, so here we have the uh, clock oscillator, which is initially 16 megahertz and now is 15.9744 megahertz. Mm-hmm. Um, the reset circuit with two gate, two two inverter flip flop with a, a, a SPDT switch and uh, the reset uh, pulse generator. Mm-hmm. We have a divider that divides down. First, it sends out the 16 megahertz clock. Divides it by two to get the dot clock for the videos. We're clocking at eight megahertz. Now we've got the CPU clock at four megahertz, the memory clock at two megahertz, and the character clock at one megahertz. Mm-hmm. Very nice and simple. One synchronous uh, counter. Over here we've got interrupt logic. IRQ zero, IRQ two, and probably IRQ one. Coming in and oring together, basically, to get to the interrupt. And then they are in, identified by data bits that are uh, enabled onto data bits 0, 1, 2, and 3 by the interrupt, ace, interrupt acknowledge mm-hmm. signal. Mm-hmm. And then we have some power input. And the battery connector has some diodes that are there for, to block uh, current coming in the reverse direction. Okay. Um, Page two. Here's the clock driver. These two transistors, Q1 and Q2. Uh, it takes the CPU clock and simply drives it with enough force uh, to keep the uh, get the levels that get to the levels that we require for a Z80 CPU, and I really do it without overshooting. Um, without much overshooting. Oh, hold on, I'm going to turn this to a lower quality in the round of memory. Okay. And yet, you look at these pictures, and you, you see how just that one simple act of jumping up in the air, and the way they did it, expressed so much of what we come to think of their personality. Just, we are in our space. And, and, but the art there was, it's not the medium of the 
Going down to the bottom, we have this ROM CE chip enabled generator circuit, which is an LS139. A decoder, which takes address 13 and 14, and it decodes it with zero to get you the Y zero out. But there is a decode of one, which would be address 13 equal to one, address 14 zero, and both of them are enabled by address 15 equal to zero. So the zero page plus a signal called ROM mode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the thing would initialize almost certainly in ROM mode. And then when you've got your booting done, it turns the ROM off. Um, so the other than ROM CE generates the I.O. request. So we're getting I.O. and I.O. space in there. Right, right. That all is dependent upon um, ROM mode. So I.O. Accesses apparently don't happen unless it's in ROM mode. Right. So you've got the whole RAM available space, and then I/O space and ROM space gets uh, addressed over it. Now you have MREC, memory request, and read coming in and being added to generate the ROM read, right. which is also uh, well. That's it. I mean, that's it. And this is on sheet one. This for the audio. Uh, sheet two. Sheet two. Yeah, we're on sheet uh, of multi-layer main logic PCB command. Yes, right. So of course, since ROM read won't have any effect unless the ROM CE is active, the ending for that happens inside the ROM chip. Uh, now we have the uh, another. See, either of these pages, I think, has an input to the CPU or the memory access timing. Right. The memory access timing is centered around UD3, which is an LS161 uh, synchronous counter. And I was very good at designing these sequential circuits around uh, synchronous counters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the trick with the Z80 was that it had a, and still has, a refresh, memory refresh cycle following each memory access cycle. And there were certain exceptions to that. And I used the memory refresh cycle to not only cycle the memory, but also to get video data out of the memory. Uh, and because the video data would be have a guarantee to have 128 addresses, that's why the the video data had 128 columns. Right. And we had a window of 52 columns that could move across that 128 uh, column. Uh, space. So the circuit did, there's an access and CPU time signal coming out of the uh, memory timer. And I believe, and I'll find out this out later, that access, uh, covered access to the uh, video. Um, you have an M1 signal that comes out of the, there's an M1 from the, uh, it should come from the processor. I mean, that's coming from page three, which is the right. next one. And let's take a look at the uh, CPU here. Uh, that's, okay, yeah. here we go. I've got very little video left, so I'm going to get you talking about the Z80 here. Yeah, well, the Z80. Oops, sorry about that. Let me get you uh, on video here. Okay, it's three, two, one, start.
Okay, the Z80 now has had the CPU clock developed, the interrupt signal coming in. There's a wait signal which does come in from that uh, memory interface. Mm -hmm. So that there were times when you had to put the processor on wait when it was doing a video ac uh, access. Um, we have a signal M1, which apparently was output by the memory timing, yes. And there's an M1 star, which is a status signal. No, that's going to input to the Z80. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to find the source for that. And I don't think I can, because these are not inputs. These are outputs. These are outputs. So there's an M1 state on the part of the, the uh, processor. And that governs uh, what happens with the uh, I.O. and so forth. We have decoders at UD10, which look for write and M1, or write and not M1, uh, well, 1 and 2, as well as an I.O. request. In other words, uh, I.O. request would be on during certain times when you go to interrupts, for instance. Right, yeah. We have some flip-flops here and a decoder with a little latch, which would generate this bit 9. Uh, bit 9 goes to the next page, and we'll see more about that. Yeah, okay. Um, we get ROM mode determined by this flip-flop. UB4 section B, and it is driven by a, this is a chain of, a shift register chain. Mm -hmm. However, it's not clocked in common. The clocks are conditional upon certain circumstances like ROM mode. Mm -hmm. So this is a continuation of the memory and the CPU access controller here. Um, you know, somebody can work out the timing diagram of this. I, I don't remember it. The CPU has 16 address bits that it puts out, uh, and we get 0 and 1 going back here to these, this decoder. Right. Um, it has the data bits, which are bidirectional. It has a ROM, which is close up to it, uh, and some pull-up resistors for when those data bits pull. Pull up. I see R45 going to plus 5, which is interesting. Why is it not one of these RN1s? Maybe there weren't enough in the uh, in the package for that. For instance, if it's an 8-pin package, it would have only 7 resistors in the common. I think that's more like what happened. So the ROM gets the dress bits. It gets the ROM chip enable, the ROM read enable, and there it is. Uh, so you have the data bus 0 through 7 address bus. 0 through 15 going out, and we have a memory request signal, which includes the standard MREC from the processor or refresh, um, because we're doing the video access during the, uh, during the refresh. refresh yeah. Typically, in a non-video system, it would do uh, an access, but it wouldn't really complete the access. It would be enable signal. So, yeah. You're on page 4. We have the memory array. It's a dynamic memory array, yeah. 16K chips by one bit, four banks of them, 
and we have some resistor networks here that uh, for the addresses to uh, prevent overshoot. We have some resistor networks on the CAS and RAS signals, again, to prevent overshoot. That's very important. And then we have a resistor network set of networks here in the data lines, which had to run most of the way across the board. And I put those resistor networks in the middle of the board because data should be coming both directions. Now, this is a 244, which is a unidirectional driver, so I'm not seeing that here, but I know we were getting data driven back from this memory array. At any rate, we had to uh, put the resistor network in there to make it work reliably, uh, because otherwise we've got too much ringing, overshoot, and so forth on the uh, data bus. We have the multiplexers, LS-153, which are four-to-one multiplexers. There are four of them and they're giving you the, generating the address bits, A0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 to the memory. We have another address bit, which is, well, that, uh, no, actually, there are only seven address bits to the memory. That's it. So now they also create A0, which, all right, that we counted that. So there are four possible sources for those addresses. Now, dynamic memory works with a dual memory addressing uh, multiplexing. First, you feed uh, the row address, you strobe the row access uh, strobe, RIS. Then you, you change to the uh, column address and strobe the column address. Well, now we're accessing this for both a video and uh, so it was a really, really low cost. I mean, this is a real cost reduction sure. method. Yeah. Well, the whole thing was to the point was to be very low very cost. Low cost. Under two thousand dollars, I guess, for everything. Seventeen hundred ninety-five was the retail price for this. So the cost of it had to be in the region of two hundred dollars or less. Wow. If I recall correctly. Wow. It might have been two fifty. Unsure about that. Now these these uh, schematics are from. Uh, May of 82, so they would be another production to the factory? Or? Well, no. First of all, production was going on continuously starting in June of uh, 81. This is simply a re-documentation, and may very well mean or be a re-layout of the board, because at that time, when Waldron was involved, one of their main tasks was to get it uh, to be FCC approvable. The right. rules were new in those days. Uh, what we put out was not done with any regard to... Uh, uh, any regard to FCC, right. and so they had to relay out the board. Okay. So I don't recognize the the numbering system, the UE, UD, UA. Maybe these are A, B, C, D on a grid. I right. think it might have been. I didn't do that in the initial layout. I could be wrong, but I don't think I did. So really, it's just a redocumentation after a relayout. Some of these hand is, is this your handwriting? Do you it think is not my handwriting. Not your handwriting. No, it's probably Waldron's handwriting. Waldron, okay. Uh, because he approved it. Blodgett's uh, a draftsman. Blodgett's a draftsman, okay. Yeah. He did the drawing of the stuff you see in blue here. Then it's passed over to the engineer, who would be Waldron in that case, and he marks it up. So this is a markup print. This is not the final print. Right, okay. Um, we have the... Uh, a latch here that takes the video data out. The clock for that is. Where is that clock coming from? 
Yeah. yeah. Well, at least you can see this big. <laughs> this age. I'm trying to find where the clock came from what because. What is it? Oh, this is an Alpha. This is the Osborne, Osborne oh, smash. Piece of, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that piece of work. Yeah. You know what you were going to say. Okay, so it's coming the other way. See, I would not have drawn it with this multiplexer pointing to the left. Um, I was brought. I was a draftsman for Data two months. Data went that way. Data went left to right. Shit rolled downhill. It's got to flow like a diarrhea. You know, John De Caesar trained me in this. Uh, guy who penciled his own penciled a mustache on his face. So we got the latch and the character generator ROM, which I I developed the character font for that. Mm -hmm. And that's why the clock is 8 megahertz and not 16, because we had to double the dots. One dot was just not going to be seen. And if I'm not mistaken, I thought we had a character with one dot in it, but I don't know. I guess it was supposed to be just a blur. It's the center of the W. Um, and then we have the LS-166 shift register, which I've been using ever since the VDM. Fine little synchronous loading shift register. And that feeds out the video. We get driven by the dot clock and loaded by horizontal count, which happens every every uh, character. But it's a pulse. Do not mix manufacturers in RAM logic, it says down there. I didn't say that. Who wrote this command? This is your baby or someone else's? Someone else was, was engineering this at the point. Oh, okay. Point. Hey, this oh, yeah, is, right. uh, I'm quite sure what they had. This is number, are we on number four? We're on number five. Five. Number five. Okay. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So here we have I.O. We have 6821, which is a Motorola chip. Right. It's basically a PIO chip. It's just a big latch, essentially. Uh, it's got a bunch of, uh, well, addresses that make up chip selects. So we're using the internal logic to do the decode there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, now this gets you, this is a latch that determines the uh CH address and TX address, meaning the uh, we didn't we did some vertical scrolling too, mm -hmm. but mostly it was horizontal scrolling. Character mm -hmm. CH address, um, and these then go into LS161 counters. So here are your your horizontal uh, address counters. The binary or decimal? Binary. Um, so those are going to the multiplexer for the, the memory address, so they're even the video address time. This source is the uh, horizontal address and the, and the vertical address too, TX address. You get five bits for that. Um, and there's a couple of other pins, drive one and drive two. I think those are for the disk drive selection. So this is a general per parallel port. We did uh, in the uh, uh, timing interface. The timing circuit was the E clock generator here, character clock. Mm -hmm. I guess mm -hmm. that's what it is that made the uh, the whole thing that chip work. And people would come up to me at some point and say, "Well, one of the examples of things you can't do is to use uh, Motorola chips with uh, Intel chips." Intel. Ha ha! I did it. You did. And they're real cheap. Yeah. So moving down here, we got. Let's see, cursor, H count. So here's some, so here's the video output circuitry. Mm -hmm. uh, so the video dots coming in, and yeah, the cursor information comes in. We're clocking this on the H count, which is the character clock, mm -hmm. um, and ordering it together. 
and there's a dim bit, so I could go to a, a lower intensity. And so we have this UE21 is the sort of last stage of uh, clocking before it went out as the video. And we have this open collector, 7406 high current syncing capability uh, inverters that work with the resistors R37, 38, 39, 40, and 41. Basically, the 39, 38, 37 is the chain that produces the video out and have a little pot that you can select for the contrast. Um, that had to be a, a 75 ohm output or something close to it. Uh, now we got the blanking signals that come in to UE23, but those are implemented through gates uh, UE22. I tried on the original VDM1 to implement that blanking out in the analog output of this this uh, circuit, but yeah. you could see the video coming through it. Right. The little wrinkles. Little wrinkles. Yeah. Were perfectly visible. It's like the word Christensen modem protocol, where you can see all the characters that are being transmitted. Yeah. Yeah. So we have now uh, in the center of the uh, image we have some US LS393s. These are binary counters. Uh, that are providing, let's see, two and four microsecond timing signals. There's a flip-flop to provide horizontal blanking. So these are some of the horizontal, the blanking timing. Uh, it's, a, it's an asynchronous ripple counter. We weren't too worried about that because we were picking it up with like this latch LS174 UD14 uh, clocked by the 62 nanosecond, a sort of sub-dot clock. And... Um, let's see, we also have the LS390, which is a decimal counter, which does the scan counting. That's for the character generator. Uh, so we would then, this would be clocked at, uh, simply clocked on a modulo 10. So there were 10 scan lines on it per character line. Right, yeah. Uh, we see one more of them that goes to uh, the UB14, another counter. So I guess that's yet another. Uh, let's see, clear, clear. We got it. Well, this whole thing gets cleared out at certain times. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know exactly under what circumstances. Okay. So the vertical blanking and so forth is that. Yep. Moving on to page six. We have. Look at all this cascading these circuit go right out. Well, these are disk interface. Oh, this is the disk interface. So we have the 74 LS03. Oh, I thought it would be 38. Open collector uh, NANs. And we have 6.8K pull-ups. Well, this is odd because if this were going out to the disk cable, it would have to be able to cable a driving 150 ohms. Right, right, right. So I'm beginning to wonder... I mean, I don't see what else this could be, because we have, let's see, a 6821, another PIO, mm -hmm. with data latch. Oh, I know what's going on here. This is not the disk interface. This is the I.O. This is the I.O. This was supposed to be originally a, an IEEE 488 interface. Okay. And we had someone who was like the brother of Barbara then Burdick, now Zelnick, who, uh, who eventually married. Adam for a while. Okay. Uh, in San Diego was writing the software for this, and so I worked, you know, collaborated with him on that. 
So we've got two of these drivers sort of bidirectional to drive this I.O. port, this parallel I.O. port. Right. And the, the pull-ups were for that. And we have similar signals, NDAC, EO1, DAV, NR, FD, SRQ, ATN, IFC, RN. All of these are IEEE 488 uh, signals. So that's what this page does. Uh, this is the uh, the parallel I.O. port. Okay. There's a note down here, Testology Shorting. Testology is the company that was building them. Okay. They were the assemblers, and they did an initial test, okay. the test development. The sheet, it was not uh, well coordinated. Sheet 7. Sheet 7. All right. 6850. This is a serial interface. Um, whether it's a U, I think it's a U, a, it's, they call it ACIA, A for asynchronous. So this okay. asynchronous interface, there's a clock divider with the 4 and 2 microsecond signals going in there to give you the right baud rate clock mm -hmm. uh, for... Uh, it was, I think, divided down internally by by four or something. We got 300 baud and 1,200 baud out of this, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we, we picked this off of the the horizontal, uh, the audio, the the, the uh, video timing chain. We got the data bus coming in. We got some address bus, I/O select. Right. There it all is. The character clock being the E signal, the one microsecond clock. <coughs> Pardon me. Got interrupts coming out of it. Right signal going in. And there's a modem RI signal, ring indicator, that just goes through and out again. Uh, but this goes out to the modem connector. That's interesting. We're getting a little story about that. We're using operational amplifiers, 3900. These are current mode op amps for the uh, RS-232 interface. We have received data coming in as well as RTS coming in. It goes to the DCD input. So they've got the, uh, we've got some hysteresis here with the, the positive feedback. Mm -hmm. uh, we have one of the 1458, which is a voltage mode op amp, very common one for the RS-232 output. And it's being run open loop. Okay. Uh, we just have a divider that uh, sets thresholds. And we have a charge pump, a 555 timer, UE1, uh, whose purpose is to provide a negative 5-volt, approximately 5-volt signal. And so that is used by the, uh, hello? Yes, it's used through R30 by the 1458 to provide a negative uh, voltage for RS-232. We have the modem connector. Now, initially, I had another page on the circuit that was a penny whistle modem. Penny whistle, right. Which was redesigned for, um, I think, well, it would have been the same. Uh, I think we had to have the, the, the uh, frequencies the other way, but I'm not sure. This was not for, for use at the other end of the line. Anyway, there wasn't room in the circuit board for that. So we just threw that page away and took all the signals that were going out to it and put them on a connector. Mm -hmm. So we have this MSB, which is the RTS signal, CTS similarly, 12 volts RX data, MCB, and TX data, and R1. So the R1, I believe, is a generalized control bit, the only control bit. I called it OLB, which stood for one lousy bit. <laughs> and when Tom Hogan, was, who was writing the manual, got to it. He said, what does it mean? I said, it means one lousy bit. We can't say that. 
So he came up with something called output low bit. And that's in the manual. Okay. Uh, but here it's called R1. Yeah, yeah. And we worked out a control system for external modems in which we would give different frequencies of bursts through it. Uh, so there's there's the circuit here. Uh, page page eight. Eight. Oh, there we go. All right. Pretty simple page. Yeah. Um, this is keyboard. Keyboard. Okay. Yeah. We had a keyboard. It was a totally passive matrix, and we had the rows being scanned by the address bits, address zero through seven, mm -hmm. and we would take data back in through a tri-state driver with pull-ups. Now, in order to accommodate the capacitance of the keyboard, which would delay the rise of the signals coming back, we used a fairly a, a, a very obscure feature of the uh, Z80 in which you did a certain kind of I.O. instruction, and it put out the address that it was, well, then you, then you did the same uh, instruction for the next one, and the higher the address lines had been set and didn't change, so that gave it extra time to rise. You didn't do that. You did it all in one instruction. There wasn't time. It was not reliable. Right. So that's all that's going on here. We have a little bit of I/O logic. Now down here we have disk select, which comes in from address 11 and address 8, and I/O select. Disk read enable, disk write enable, and our ubiquitous character clock, which is actually generated here, well, by inverting character clock, it's just an inverse. So that's what they get a one megahertz signal. So that will go, let's get to the next page. We've got our last page nine here. Page nine, a disk controller. Disk controller. It says so right here. Yeah. And this is a 1793. I thought we used a, seven, a 765, but this is a 1793 controller. Think from national, I'm not sure. And we have uh, again. Let's see now. Character clock shows up here because that's a, a one megahertz clock for it. Um, and it'll select and read enables. So we just have the signals going out. Step direct direction index coming back in. We use uh, 7406s to drive the 150 ohm terminations. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have an LS-161 here, memory clock, let's see, what's that generating? Um, that is generating a read clock to the, uh, to the uh, disk controller, and there's some ready output from there that has some changes this, this timing a little bit. I don't remember that exactly, how that works. We have a two-stage shift register, but they don't have a common clock. One is the CPU clock. So they're sort of reclocking this, apparently. But that generates the raw read signal. Right. I'm not sure what that is. How many how many chips was the disk controller using? You see it right here. It's one chip. One chip. It's one LSI chip with 40 pins. Right. We've got one LS-161 counter. We've got two flip-flops, which is in one chip. Right. And we've got the uh, UA-10 and here's more UA-10 and UA-9. Two 7406 uh, high-current drivers. Parts of an LS-244. four. Go right ahead. Um, so that's 
half of a 244 buffer. As I say, we have two um, uh, inverters and, and one LS74, two sections of it, and one 161. So that's the disk controller. We designed the uh, board on the other end of that, but it's an, it could have run with, with uh, commercial boards. We used the same circuit, same timing and same uh, approximate circuits, only a few quirks. So we, but we were, the, we were building that board supposedly to save money. Uh, Adam said we'll use uh, raw metal disk drives uh, that we can get real cheap. Right. And the problem was they still had to be aligned, and nobody really understood that until we started production. Whoops, we need to align the disks. And so this empty space that was going to be marketing started filling up with workbenches of people busy turning pots and adjusting the disks. So, oh, yes, it didn't last, though. So, so, so what else can I tell you? So this is the story of the Osborne 1 schematics, mm -hmm. sheet 1 to 9, as told by Lee Felsenstein. Stein. Stein. My name is Stein. Lee Felsenstein, and thank you very much. Uh, these came through Eric, Mc, uh, Greg McNichol, mm -hmm. and I have to find out who he got them through. So maybe there's a source of more Osborne stuff. Who knows? I'm sure there's plenty of lore. Is there any other schematics around, do you know, that have survived? Or? Well, I donated all of my schematics to the Green Library at Stanford. Okay. If there was anything there from this time, it would be there. But I think all the stuff that I had from then were given to Osborne. To Osborne. We might have had something that came back from Osborne at that point. I don't know. You may ch want to check. You know, papers of Lee Felsenstein. Okay. Thank, thank you, Lee. Thank you very, very much. You're most welcome. For the DigiBarn Radio, this is... Bruce Damer, yeah, signing off. Bye-bye. You've been listening to DigiBarn Radio. This story is available for some uses under our Creative Commons license. Please check our website at www.digibarn.com. That's www.digibarn.com for this license and more great stuff from the DigiBarn collections. This is Tommy Cuellar signing off. Thanks for tuning in.